Welcome to The Key to Carowin, a work of original fiction by Wendy Fair. Key to Carowin is narrated by Mason Fair. Chapter 13, The Key. I go back to the stonework edifice where people named doctor and nurse work without end using vulgar medicines and crude machines in their ineffectual attempts to stem the course of time and nature. They might as well have been digging a hole in the sand, its edges caving in around them as they dig. Do they not realize it would be far kinder to let nature have its way? It would have its way in the end, and the human sufferings would come to a close that much sooner if they would let nature hold sway. Their strivings only prolonged the agony. Nature was created for a reason after all. It serves its purpose diligently. But you have no concept of the life waiting for you beyond death. Nor do you have any comprehension of the value of the lives you live here. You consume your resources and eke out an intangible existence, stacking up increasing numbers of duties and activities, and call the monstrosity you make an accomplishment. It is not. Let me disabuse you of that notion right now. Many others know this by now and will tell you so on your deathbed. These things are mere busyness to help you avoid the truly important, substantial, and imperative. Those things that you were created to learn. What you call living is simply actions supplanting life. I suppose these were the things he sent me here to teach you. But you would not have learned them from me. You would have scorned them just as you do now. Who would accept a life so painfully full of living only to find, at the end it was hollow, a form in mist and foam? The scene. Dry, stale air punctuated by the scent of deadened green. Brazen lights shining, blinding, but never illuminating. Muted voices, clunking wheels, and softened footfalls drifting down cluttered hallways. A small child cries when I pass and buries his face in his mother's bosom. I do not stop. A closed door and a darkened room. A small body drowning in a bed that is much too large for it. The form spewing out plastic tubes and pipes, hisses and clicks, and electronic beeps. And they call this life. It is not. Still, it would not be me who would disillusion them. It suited me to have him here, contained, powerless, and without potential. The shadows troubled me. Always the shadows, thick about the room and lying heavy on the infant. Their sudden scuttling about with a flick and a flash, all the while remaining still and silent, not moving, ever watching. As though time was not relevant to them, as though it did not touch them. 
like the light, they knew it not. As much as humans credit me with being in charge of all things dark and direful, alas, I am not. Would that it were so. If I were in charge of such inconstant creatures, I would not have had to wonder what they were about, would not have worried about their interference or concerned myself with conjecturing on why they cared so much, why they stayed and watched, touched and settled, sat at his feet without moving. If only I had known then. It was not caring I was witnessing, it was self-preservation. I ought to have known. She said it after all. Shadows are a reflection of what is. I did not understand that then, and now it is too late. I leave the small body and the watching shadows. I go to the girl's home. I have details to attend to there. I first check on the boy. A schoolyard running, jumping laughter. A rubber sphere bounces past, children chasing it. A ball. The boy catches it, and the others protest. Now is my time. With so very little prompting, only the slightest of unheard whispers, there is a push and a shove, a yell and a shout. And so the boy's taste of anger is kindled with the trickle of blood that seeps from his lip to his tongue. I will see to it that the anger is kept burning. Just enough to smolder inside him, but not enough to burst into flame. After all, it is the boy I want to burn and char, not the others. Not yet at any rate. I check on the woman next. The man is there. The woman is in tears, always in tears. They are so easily prompted these days. You don't need to be working all the time, she yells at the man. Don't you care what's going on here? Don't you care what I'm dealing with? Of course I care, he returns hotly. Why do you think I work? We have bills to pay. Do you want to be put out into the street? Do you think it's easy for me to be gone? Do you think I can even concentrate on my work? Though it is, and he can. The woman turns and walks out of the room, wet, gasping, pressing down of weighty pain. She drops down onto the couch. He follows and watches from the doorway, but says nothing. I have stolen his words. It is my words she will hear. I sit beside the woman, a weightless caress, a fatalistic whisper that she cannot hear, a single thought planted at just the right time, the bitter aftertaste of the thing, and thus begins the woman's spiral into the mire of gloom, a bottomless pit from which one cannot extract oneself. I do nothing about the man. The man will need a little help from me. He will write his own story. I would not have sought out this man for my plan, but he is innocuous, even adding to my scheme at times, especially now.
I never knew unexceptional could be so useful. Just to look at the man would convince anyone that he is anodyne in the truest sense of the word. He is colorless, even more so than everything else. Unlike the woman, the man is a study in browns. Brown eyes, brown hair, brown business pants, brown tie, thick brown eyeglasses. Despite his heavily corrected vision, he sees little outside of himself and his work. He is content there with the other workers, knows what to do there. Work is concrete. There is no messiness or guesswork to be done. Specifically, there are no decisions for him to make. Best of all, he has convinced himself that working is the proper way to care for his family. He provides the thing they truly need. Why else would he be doing it, he thinks. Surely not for himself. <laughs> he is deluded. And yet these things suit my plan. I leave him to his own devices. I go to check on the girl, but for all my efforts, the girl continues untouched and unaffected by my mental diatribes, my suggestions, my stirrings, and my promptings. She trusts instead to her and her unsubstantial reassurances. As though she can do anything but watch and wait for time to pull her in its wake along with the rest of us. Naturally, there is something different about the girl. There has to be. Time moves forward. The next things I see are red and green lights strung on every surface, as though the humans have any hope of keeping the darkness of this world at bay. Music careening about, harsh and bitter, loud and tuneless. Yet it animates the humans. Trees are erected in every corner, on the streets and in the houses. Ironic, I find, that the truest sign of life you humans can find is a dead tree. The layer of cold blanketing everything in a sickening reflection of paltry light flower white. White painted on so thickly one can taste its powder burning at the back of the throat. Yet you humans like that too. It distracts you. At least for a moment in time. Do I have to go to school? The girl asks the woman. Can't I go with you to see the baby? No, they don't let kids in that part of the hospital. Besides, you're still coughing. I can't bring you up there. A pout and a trembling of the lip, a slow and reluctant shuffle to the school. The girl does not try to hurry, ignoring the biting of the wind that reaches to pull the breath from her lungs and scratches at her throat so that she coughs. Instead, she covers her face with her mittened hands, ducking down into her coat and the warm, soggy air inside it. School is a weak bomb for what ails the girl. The work provides little distraction, the children are banal, and the play uninspired. The girl watches the clock as the hands creep, 
Her work is on the desk in front of her, already complete while the others struggle with the task. Are you finished? She asks, appearing out of nowhere again. I almost startled this time. She hadn't entered the school before. Yeah, the girl replies with a sigh. She takes a string out of her desk and twines it through her fingers in patterns over and over again. A star, a ladder, a map of incomprehensible streets. Well, it is almost time to go home, she offers. Did you do anything interesting today? Only one thing. Before lunch, the teacher brought me to a room. A lady was there. She asked me questions. I didn't answer them. Why not? Wasn't any of her business. She said I could play with her dollhouse. Was that fun? I didn't play with it. No? A shake of a weary head. She would have thought everything I made the dolls do were things we did at home. It wouldn't have been true. I only play the things we don't do at home. Why else would I play? Well, at least you did something different. Yeah, I suppose. What time is it? It is late when I check on the girl again. I find her with her brother sitting in the back seat of a motorized box of metal. A car. Once again, plastic and smoke and motion imitating life. Failing light outside, cold blowing against a car where it sits in the hospital parking lot. The two of them have books in hand, but I wonder at how they could make out anything in the sickly light. I'm not surprised when they both abandon their efforts at reading. They each turn to look out opposite windows. The girl pulls her jacket to her more tightly and spews a rattling breath into it. A nearby street lamp flickers to light as if to warm her, but neither the light nor its warmth reach the girl. How long have they been gone? The girl asks. Not long. Takes time for them to get to the room and longer to check on the baby. The boy replies. He is, for once, not terse. Not yet. I will see to that in a moment. It's getting cold. Did Dad leave you the keys? Can we start the car? No, he took the keys. They said they wouldn't be long. It was still light out when they left. It's getting dark now. They've already been gone too long. It hasn't been that long, the boy replies firmly. A prickly silence settles between the pair. I would know. I put it there, after all. When will they be back? The girl asks with another hacking spasm. This one harsher than the last. How would I know? They said not long. Kurt now. The boy picks up his book again. Few words, mostly pictures. A comic. And holds it by the window, trying to read. Maybe we should go find them, the girl puts in. Her words ride on an undercurrent of worry that makes them just a little higher pitched than normal. 
We don't know where they are in there, and we're not allowed in. The boy replies. Just wait for them. They'll be back soon. I think... I think you should shut up and wait. The boy thrusts, angry now, fear shoving the words out of his mouth, sharp and biting. The girl looks over to him, and I watch as her face sets, firm and determined. I'm going to look for them, she says quietly, almost to herself. She quickly opens the door and slides out. The boy lunges for her, but the girl is already closing the door on his outstretched hand. Fine, the boy shouts through the closed window of the car. Go get lost then. He turns and flicks his comic open, burying his face in it. The girl moves to the side of the parking area and looks around. She breathes in the soothing cool air. It calms her cough and cools her forehead. She lifts her face to the sky for a moment, then looks about. Spying the front door of the hospital, she sets her course on a direct line to it, cutting across patches of dry grass and an ailing white covering that sticks to her shoes. She shoves her bare hands deeper into the pockets of her coat as she walks. Do you know where you are going? She asks, appearing beside the girl. The girl does not seem surprised by her appearance. No, I'll just look for signs or ask someone. I suppose that is one way to go about it. They step up to the large double doors, the portal to the labyrinth that is the hospital. The girl pulls on one of the doors, but it barely moves. She tries again. It does not open enough for her to squeeze through despite her tiny frame, and it immediately bumps closed again. The girl pulls her coat about her more tightly, holding a death grip on the collar, and looks around. She sets off toward a smaller, single door set into the side of the building, down a set of concrete steps. This door is lighter and more willing, and the girl manages to pull it open enough to slide through. She emerges in a hallway, silent and half-lit. One side of the hallway is lined with doors, the other with windows. They reflect her dark, eyeless form back to her, and she turns away from them. I don't think this is the main floor, the girl observes. No one is here. Best to find a way up, she suggests. The girl begins to walk, and I see them then. The shadows. Always those interfering abominations. I watch as they creep and skim, moving ahead of the girl, obscuring signs with their non-light and darkening the way driving the girl into what little light there is in the dwindling corridor. The girl steps slow and then stop. Her breathing quickens and crackles, coming in short gasps at times. This doesn't look right, she says with a cough. Do you know where we are? No, I've not been in this part of the building before. Just keep going until you find a way up.
Yeah. The girl starts forward again, her steps wary and wavering now, her breathing hard and noisy. The stage, a heavily shadowed hallway, close-set plaster walls of pipes visible and running overhead in lines of red, green, and blue. Echoes that make the girl turn to look over her shoulder. Light slipping away with each step further into the recesses of the tunnel. The mingled scent of oil and acetone filtered on the draft channeled along the hallway, blowing the girl deeper into the darkness. The girl reaches a barricade. The sign might say construction if there were enough light for the girl to read it. She stops and turns. It's too dark. I can't see where I'm going. She cries in a whisper. Close your eyes for a moment. The girl does. Now open them, but this time look at the shadows. The girl opens her eyes and peers into the indigo and black surrounding her. I watch. We all watch as the shadows shift and reshape themselves, pulling back a velvet black drape to reveal a gray door. There is a dull glimmer of light on the round silver knob, and the girl immediately reaches for it. With a push and a grunt, the door gives way. Light pours down onto the girl, glaring against the shadows but doing nothing to illuminate the passage. Not this thick, whitewashed light that is more gray than white. The girl tries to see into the glare of it where it bounces off the corridor walls, only to collect just in front of her feet. She takes tentative steps forward, startling at the sound of the door latching behind her. She turns a reluctant eye on the door, then moves forward again, her feet sending up echoes that crack the silence, falling all about her like snowflakes on a still winter's night. She walks for minutes, until she is not sure either end of the hall truly exists. Hey! The girl jumps and spins, turning to the voice. Yeah, you! The girl peers into a door following the sound. In the brightness sits a bed, all levers and metal. In the bed lies a boy, his white hospital gown like a tent around him. Dark eyes peer out of a pallid face, spent coals in a bed of ashes. He gestures for the girl to enter his room. The girl follows the motion, slowly, surely, eyes never leaving the boy's beckoning hand. Can you get my book for me? The boy asks. His white hair sprouts thinly from his scalp, waving about his face when he talks. He points a thin digit to the table near his bed. The girl moves to the table and picks up the book, hard-covered, scratchy like burlap and smelling of medicine. She hands it to the boy without looking at it, instead watching his hand as he reaches for it. 
She can see the bones through his paper-thin, wax-colored skin. His fingers touch hers and the girl jerks her hand away. Thanks, the boy says. Can you pull up my blanket for me? The girl glances to where the boy points, seeing the white linen folded at his feet. She moves to the blanket and pulls it open, clutching its edge tightly in fisted hands as she walks to the head of the bed, pulling the blanket with her. The boy settles against his pillow and the girl tugs at the blanket. She tucks it around his shoulder, spying the ribs that show through his gown and the way his collarbones stick up under his translucent skin. She takes a quick step back. Just one more thing, the boy says. The girl does not speak nor move. Can you get me a drink of water? The boy is all sunken eyes and pale, cracked lips. The girl moves to the boy's bedside table. There stands a water jug and a cup, filled to the brim with water. The girl picks it up and takes it to the boy. The girl hands the boy the glass. In the brief second it takes for the cup to change hands, she catches the boy's reflection in the surface of the water. It is not a boy's face she spies there. No, the image the girl sees in the reflection speaks of memento mori, of decaying flesh and bones, bared teeth, and hollow sockets where eyes once were. The girl starts and drops the cup, the water pouring down on the blankets, the boy and the bed. There is a snarl and a snatch, nails like cracked and dirty splinters dig into the girl's wrist. The girl jerks her hand away and runs toward the door. The skeleton of a man seeps out from under the bedclothes and follows after her. The man reaches the door first, slamming it shut before the girl can get through. The shadows begin to move again, and that's when I see it. No, don't let her find it. Don't let her have it. But the shadows do not listen. They move, sliding off the thing until the sickening fluorescent light settles on it with a gleam and a glint reflected in just the right direction. She sees it then. A chain around the living corpse's neck, and on the chain a key dangles, hanging in the space between his ribs. She takes a single step back, then stops, tilting her head to one side as she considers the key. She looks at the door. A deep breath and a lunge, and the girl has the key in her hand. She pulls with all her strength. The chain does not break. Instead, the creature's skull loosens from its moorings and falls, skittering and spinning away on the glaring tiled floor. The body follows, slumping, crumbling, dead weight. The girl jumps over the clawing, writhing tangle of bones and shed skin. She leaps to the door and yanks it open. She lunges through it just as a single hand crawls forward to reach for her ankle. 
but the hand is too late. The girl is on the other side of the door and down the hall now. She is again at the door where she entered. A twist, a shove, a scurry of feet, up clamorous steps, another push, and the girl is met by dim stars and cold night air. She gulps it in hungrily as she presses the door closed behind her. Set deep in the stone archway on the side of the building. She leans back against the cold stones outlining the door and bends over to catch her breath. She is in a small courtyard. The corners made of an accumulation of dead leaves. The floor a worn cobblestone. The glassy walls of the hospital reach up one side to cut the dark sky with stone and metal. After several moments, the girl finally stops her gasping and coughing and looks at the shimmer of light lying in her palm. This is it, she whispers. This is the key. Yes, she replies. It would seem you have found it. It will do you no good, however. The door cannot be opened. The shadows led me to it, the girl said. So I must need it. It must do something if they wanted me to have it. She palmed the cool metal of the thing, savoring the smoothness of her treasure. I'm sure it will work. You cannot entirely trust the shadows, she pressed. You do not know why they wanted you to find it. I do not know why they led you to it. Yeah, but it must do something. I'm certain it does. She said with a frown marring her perfect features. But right now, you need to find your parents, she concluded. I caught her out then, her wary glance at the twilight creatures at her feet, a drawing back of her foot where the things clawed at it. I saw her frown too and noticed the way she turned her face from the fawning forms stepping out from among them and into the ephemeral moonlight that drove them back. The girl followed her. They returned to the main path and started toward the front doors. The path wound under arches and between close-set tree trunks. If she had turned to search for it, the girl would not have been able to find the courtyard again. There are places like that in this world, and you have seen a few in your life. Places that cannot be found in the daylight and cannot be returned to once left. The girl left it behind without considering it, without a second thought, without even a cursory glance back. Everyone leaves places like that in exactly the same way. Yet that is not a good way to leave them, with no formal leave-taking. There is always a thin mercurial thread left attached when you leave those places that way. A thread that catches at times. That tightness of the chest, that unease of things forgotten that are best remembered. The start at a sound with things unseen, that nightmare. And still you would not remember the place nor the time you spent there. The woman appears then, just emerging from the building, tissue in hand and dabbing at her eyes. 
The man follows several steps behind, grim and unfocused. The girl runs to the woman. I found you, the girl announces, as though the entire thing had happened just according to plan. You were supposed to wait in the car, the woman chastises lightly. But you were gone a long time and it was getting cold and we couldn't read anymore because it was dark and I needed some fresh air because my throat still hurts and I was getting scared and look what I found on my way to get you. The girl spews. She holds up the key. The woman takes it and turns it over in her hand as they make their way back to the car. It looks like a scrap of metal from something they're building. The woman decides, handing the thing back to the girl. As I've said, you humans can see nothing. It's a key, the girl insists. They are at the car, then. The woman turns a tolerant gaze on the girl. Fine, she replies. It's a key. Just get in the car so we can go home. The girl rides in the back seat of the car, sliding along through the night, through the faint moonlight, through the pinprick stars high overhead, and through the ever-present flashing of red and green light displays strapped to every light standard. She looks at them passing, but I watch her hands in the dark, gripping the key tightly between her palms until the edges of the thing pinch and hold. Still, she does not loosen her grip on it. She is right to hold on to it so tightly. Listening to Key to Carowin, a work of original fiction by Wendy Fair. Key to Carowin was narrated by Mason Fair, with original music provided by Serena Fair. For more information about this and other projects, please visit shifterspress.ca. Thank you for listening.